Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Obviously, it's Anzac Day, and many of you, or a number of you, would have already been to a dawn service. Um, and I've seen some people here today already who have served and, and others. And this will be one of the few years I haven't worn my father's medals because I often go to an Anzac Day service. Uh, both I've done dawn services and, and the civic services. And my dad's medals were on this side. Um, there, there's, there's a challenge I want to talk about both natural and spiritual. So we'll start in the natural. And I want to relate in, in many ways what we can learn from our Anzacs. And, and I want to take some time to honour them and the principles that surround the notion of Anzac. You know, I don't know if you understand the principles behind it, but they're principles like this. Mateship in a narcissistic age. Courage in a time of great fear. It doesn't mean there wasn't fear. It just means courage that overcame fear. Sacrifice at a time when there's great self-centeredness. And endurance at a time when many simply quit on life, quit on family, quit on marriage, quit on work, etc. People are so easy quitting from something to something, look, go for something they think might be better. The early Anzacs, uh, uh, they fought for God, king and king or queen and country. Uh, and there was a constant awareness of the frailty and the temporality of life and the enduring nature of heaven. Many, if not most, of the early Anzacs were, were Christian, were believers in Jesus Christ, and many carried Bibles and openly spoke of their faith in the midst of hellish circumstances. And it's fitting today that we, we take some time to remember the men and women who, who were an integral part of this process, both those who went and those who supported them uh, behind, the, behind the scenes as well. Uh, the culture we live in today that we call freedom and equality has all come about primarily because these people believe the message of sacrifice of Jesus. They believe the message of the cross. They believe what Calvary means. They believe the teachings of his life. And that's that concern and care for one another. I don't know if you realise that the world was not like that. The world did not have that sense of, of equality. There was, there was this whole caste system. You're in the upper level or the middle level, the lower level. And that discrimination that flowed between men and women and, and children. And, and this whole mess that was the world changed because of the message of Christ. That which we have today is a result of the message of Christ that people have, have maintained and, and many in things like our wars have fought for to uphold. This culture we want to keep. We want to make sure it's a, we look after it and we need to be vigilant to uphold these principles personally, corporately, culturally and politically. We, we need to hold them and if necessary... Sadly, if necessary, as a last resort, go to war over it. We need to defend that times by force. Listen, I'm not calling us for violence. We only ever are in this for the defence of the truth. The, see, we, we need to understand peace is never negotiated. You don't negotiate peace. You negotiate compromise. Listen, you negotiate compromise, which is I'm not really happy, you're not really happy, but we can actually live with not being happy to that level. Well, that's not peace and it won't last because sooner or later someone will become more unhappy with the, with the compromise and will want to change it. That's how we got a second world war. 
people became unhappy with the end of the First World War and this extreme nationalism, not nationalism by itself, but the extreme nationalism of violence to take over the world rose its ugly head again. The liberties we enjoy today were won by others and is maintained by the continuing effort, these natural liberties, by our armed services and all who support them who carry this spirit of freedom and this fight to maintain the freedom that we have. This is in many ways the spirit of ANZAC, our ANZs, you know, Australian New Zealand Armed Corps, our, our people who work together, brothers and sisters in arms for the benefit of the community, the country and the world. Listen, it wasn't just for our country. It was for the whole world that this world might live in a level of peace. It's a reminder to us to inspire us to take courage and be willing to make sacrifices for what is good and right, regardless of the cost, and to never forget that there are those who went before us as examples of what is good and what is right. Jesus himself taught us that there is no greater love than the sacrifice of one's life for his friends. Real love is not pleasure-seeking, See, love is love. No, real love is not pleasure-seeking. Real love is sacrificial. In that Anzac tradition, we see that sense of real love, the sacrifice. And I I really believe, I'm glad we have a a higher focus these days on the whole context of Anzac. And I don't want to ever forget what's happened and why we have our freedoms, both through the Anzacs and through Christ. And we will remember them. Now, I want to move on to consider more specifically how this relates to us as Christians. See, in the concept of Anzac, we see that peace has a price. I think of how many people have fought, died, been injured and suffered in the process of providing a society where we have relative peace. Not just those who went, but those who lost their loved ones, those whose loved ones came home different came home with mental problems, with shell shock and what we call PTS now. Uh, It is this this journey of more than just those who went paid. And we have this peace at a price. I think about the history of Israel and how it journeyed. You know, up up to Abraham, it was not unusual for animal, sorry, for human sacrifice. And so when we read in the scripture that God speaks to Abraham to sacrifice his son, we think that's horrible. No, God is just communicating with Abraham in a culture where that's normal, where people would sacrifice their children to try and appease God. And so Abraham is is spoken to by God, not because God wants that. God knew what he was going to do. God was going to change the mentality, change the mindset of humanity, especially through the Jewish nation, from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. God will provide himself a lamb. A picture of Jesus, God himself providing himself as the lamb. And so God provides a lamb. And, and, and that, that changed the culture and it flows through to Israel. And then there would be animal sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So it might be turtle doves that would be sacrificed. It might be a goat. It might be a bull. It might be a lamb. There, there was blood. There was also other sacrifices of wine and grain, etc., thanksgivings. But for sin, there was always bloodshed. Now we go, well, it's horrible. Well, yeah, but it also, in that sense, it provided food for the priests. 
And what it did, more than, more than just the process of, of actually doing something, it gave people a sense of relief. It removed condemnation. They had a sense of if we took this animal sacrifice for our sin, we took it to the priest properly, then we could go away cleansed. We could go away guilt-free. And, and so regardless of what you think of the Old Testament animal sacrifices, it had a mental, psychological health issue and that removed guilt from people. And so God moved this journey from human sacrifice. In the middle of Israel doing this, other nations continued in their human sacrifices. And then 2,000 years of this, God comes along and turns up on the scene. See, see, I just think this is amazing. Moving it from Israel to the world. See, the surrounding nations still had their, their sacrifice, their self-mutilation, their self-harm, their children's sacrifice to, to idols. And we wonder, where, where does this battle come from? People want peace. They want somehow to feel at ease. They want to have some kind of peace. They want to relieve their life from the pressures and the pains, and the anxieties. They're looking for pleasure in life. James says this in four, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Where do, wars, where do wars come from and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? I mean, to have such a desire for pleasure that you're willing to sacrifice your child? That, 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 I, I, I struggle to comprehend that. But we're 4,000 years later. You know, here's this... They come from our desires to pleasure, that war in your members. You See, people are at an internal war. There is no surprise that internal war reflects itself in external war. You lust and do not have. You don't get what you want. You murder and covet and can't get it, can't obtain it. You fight and war and you don't have because you don't ask. We're not going to God. We're trying to do it ourselves. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss to spend it on your pleasures. People did all kinds of things to obtain their own pleasures in this life, even at the expense of others. People became tools for my pleasure. And the more power I had, the more aggressive I could be in chasing after my own plans and desires. The world then and even now has people who think that going to war to get their own way is justifiable. From the jungle tribes around the world in forests to those in concrete jungles, gangs that have their warlords and their concepts of God, the God of pleasure for self. People who want to stand for something better are seen as the enemy. Evil is called good and good is called evil. People who want true peace are often end up having to fight a war of defence to maintain it. History shows that there will always be those with the desire for personal pleasures that lead to some kind of war either within them, in their community, in their world. It's small for some, but it's large for others. We, we have people in history like Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Osama bin Laden and Kim Jong-un, whatever, Jong-un. Uh, and, and there are countless others even today who, who are happy for violence. The guy who abuses his wife, the mother who neglects her children, the kids who abuse their parents. People want their pleasure and they're happy to get it at someone else's expense. 
natural lusts and desires that will need to be addressed by natural responses. But even if we do win a victory, it will be short-lived and another wicked person will arise. We have the benefit of knowing and believing there's a better answer. Jesus turns up in history and changes everything. He shows us that there is a real eternal solution. While people will continue to put their lives on the line and necessarily for a temporary peace in this present world, the Bible tells me one day, one day this will change. In fact, one day it's going to change before Jesus comes back and it's progressively heading that way as it was with the Apostle Paul when he was called Saul. He went around thinking he was serving God by torturing and having Christians killed. His standard of righteousness justified his behaviour. We see it today in our legislation where people who call marriage a covenant that is only between a man and a woman are attacked. People who call sexual immorality wrong, regardless whether it's between a man and a woman, a man or a man, a woman or a woman, or people who don't know who or what they are, get criticised and condemned for standing for righteousness. Saying there are only two sexes, male and female, gets you called a hater and a hypocrite. People who call gender dysphoria um, a mental health problem are accused of being hurtful and discriminatory by people who say it's normal. And the world agrees now that good is evil and evil is good. We have a world that is turned upside down. This is not the world our Anzacs fought for. We have a world that's turning more and more toward the place where those who want to stand for righteousness will be attacked, criticised, all sorts of things will happen. I mean, the, the prime example, that the recent was that Catholic priest down in Tassie who gave his church community a letter talking about the Catholic view on marriage ends up in court having to defend the right to say something we would all consider as righteous. We're in a world where that's more and more happening. It's not what they fought for. How do we stand? Well, we stand firstly with a hope. We stand with a hope of eternity. See, our part, like Jesus, our part is not to judge and condemn people, but to win them to Jesus by true love. Not the lusts of the world that create war, but by true love that's willing to make a sacrifice to actually obtain real peace. Even when dying on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus died for the sin and the sins of the world. Like those who've lost their lives in natural conflict for the purpose of holding the truth of righteousness. And Jesus gave his life for that, like our Anzacs did. But there are two distinct differences. And I mean no disrespect and I take no honour away from those who serve in wars, those who are willing to serve and those who currently serve for defending our freedom. And the price they pay, their friends pay, their families pay. I don't take anything away from that. We need those people in our world to protect the freedoms we have. Now I'm talking eternal. See, Jesus did not have his life taken. He didn't go to war at the risk of losing his life. He gave it willingly. He did not have it taken from him. He, he could have saved himself, but he didn't. He gave. He didn't risk his life. He gave it with free will. He always had the power to save his own life, but he gave that up 
to win peace, to purchase peace. And that's an important distinction. And the second is even more important. What he did provided a permanent solution. What he did is not a temporary. Now, another wicked demigod like the devil will not arise and do what he's done. Jesus has finished that work. The Bible actually is very clear on this in Romans 6.10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. It's not the only passage. Hebrews 7.27, who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices. They had the animals like every year, every sin. Not daily for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Jude it says this, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, what Jesus did once for all is enough for all the sin and all the sins of the whole world. That is what love does. Love pays the price to bring an opportunity of freedom. And Jesus has provided a permanent opportunity for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. He did it once. So what, they, what our insects do means we have a war, we win it, but we're going to have another one and we're going to have another one and we're going to have another one and we're going to have another one. And the world has wars all over the place even now. They may not be as big as our two world wars, but they are there. We've had them in Borneo. We've had them in, in, uh, in Korea. We've had them in Vietnam. We've had them all over the place. And they will continue and people will still need to go and sacrifice their lives. Put them on the line to keep the freedoms we have. Who knows what China will look like in the years ahead. In fact, it sort of ties in with the scripture about the future. Very interesting. Nevertheless, what Jesus did was once for all and provided a permanent door for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. He says, I am the door. Whoever enters to me will come in. Here's this door that's been made, a once for all situation. This would only be a nice story, a dream, a false hope. If it was not followed up, by the thing that proved it to be true. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Paul's very clear that the death and resurrection of Jesus only has merit if Christ is risen from the dead. He says, if that didn't happen, then what Jesus did did not do what we wanted to do. It did not deal with the sin and sins in the world. But Paul's very clear, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you've received in which you stand, by which you're also saved, if you hold fast that word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. 
See, that's what makes the sacrifice real. That's what makes what Jesus did true. That's what makes it powerful. It makes it sufficient, a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the world. And whoever calls, it says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare this gospel by which you're saved, if you hold fast. I deliver that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He rose, he buried, rose, according to Scriptures. Down in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead, become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. There's the solution. In Christ all will be made alive. All will be set free from what Adam brought on humanity in his sin. Jesus made a permanent way out. A permanent price has been paid to deal with that. And, and we have to do something with it. See, when Peter and John are called in the religious leaders to give an answer for healing a blind man, I mean, how is it that when you, when you do something good, you end up in trouble with the political leaders? Because they were the political leaders of the day. They did something good. They healed a blind man. Sorry, healed a man who was lame. And, and now they're in trouble. And it says this, their response to the religious leaders, let it be known to you all. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's pretty challenging in your face, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Another version says capstone, so the foundation, the beginning and the end, the completion of it all. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, we were all heading to an eternal hell. Whatever that looks like, we were all heading there and it wasn't going to be nice. An eternal separation from God and goodness and love. But God in his great love made a way that allowed him to be both just and loving. That way was Jesus to come, to live, to die and to rise again, to pay once for all the price. Jesus took our penalty so we could share his reward, eternal life. Those who turn to God by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, repenting of their sin and then living for him are made right with God and are then able to enter heaven, escaping hell. Now, some people don't like that. They don't like the message of the truth but we were all heading to hell. Oh, God sends people to hell. No, we were going there and God is rescuing us. God is good and gracious and kind. Our sin and our sins were taking us to hell, whatever that looks like, but it wouldn't be pleasant. See, that's why the cross and the resurrection are so important because heaven and hell are real. What Jesus did has eternal consequences. What the Anzacs did needs to have others following to continue to do. And while sin remains, their work is never done. We need to remember those gone and those who will follow. And it's right that we do that. And before I move on, accordingly at this point of time, I want to take a moment to remember them. I want to read parts three and four of the Uniform Resolution. 
And then I'm going to ask you to stand, if you can. And I'll read the ode, followed by the last post, a minute's silence, and then the rouse. And then while you're still standing, then I want to move into communion. So let me begin now. And I think this is really important. There are five parts of the Uniform Resolution. The first part honours the early, the first Anzacs, and then it moves on from there. I want to read point three and four. And I'm happy, you know, if you want to say at the end of each one, amen, then I'm happy for you to join with me because I read this in an affirmation of my heart, both before God and before man. This meeting voices its heartfelt sympathy with the relatives of those who during these wars and conflicts made this supreme sacrifice and with those who have suffered on behalf of the Commonwealth. Four. This meeting gives its assurance that those who have fallen shall be held in sacred memory and that those who have survived the perils of war will ever be honoured and remembered with gratitude by the people whose hearts, whose hearths and homes they, were, they went forth to save that our freedom and our free institutions under the Commonwealth of Nations might survive. I want to honour not, not just those who've served but their families and all those around them, both past and present and future. Would you stand with me? Ben, if you want to be ready for those, we'll do the ode. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.